You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. You all may be seated this morning. Once again, we are in our series entitled Strength in Our Hands, and right now we are going to be talking about our hands being strengthened in Revelation. Hands being strengthened in Revelation. Why do we need strong hands? Strong hands, Nehemiah 2.18, strong hands are the, are the metaphor for being able to serve in a way that things get put back together again. Strong hands are the way that we describe metaphorically what it means to realize things have fallen apart, things were, things have fallen apart, and things need to be restored. And so when we think about hands, we think about Thomas touching the hands of Christ. We think about the laying on of hands. We think about hands as a metaphor for the work of serving that needs to be done. And as we've been saying, and as we'll continue to say all year long, The strong hands in the kingdom of God are nail-scarred hands, hands that have denied themselves, hands that have said no to their own ego, hands that don't work to make their own lives better, but hands that at an expense to their life make the lives of others whole. Hands that recognize people who no one else recognizes. Hands that reach out to those no one else reaches out to. Hands that are willing to go places that other people aren't willing to go. Those are the kinds of hands. That is the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus was lived in a way where Jesus forever associated himself with people who had no power or standing in society. We see it here when he begins to call his disciples. He doesn't ever go to the temple to call disciples. He doesn't ever go to the universities to call disciples. He goes on his way to Galilee and sees people, not in the square being orators. He doesn't see people in the temple waxing eloquent. He sees people mending their nets, standing by fishing boats, sitting in tax booths, and he says, you're the ones that I'm going to use to build my kingdom. And so the revelation of God, here's the reality, the revelation of God is seen most in those people who lack the kinds of power that our carnal self craves. 
the life of God is seen most in the people who lack the kinds of power our carnal fallen self craves. So whatever kind of power we want, whatever kind of fame we want that isn't defined by Jesus on his hands and knees, washing feet or having nails pierced through his hands, whatever kind of power comes from consumerism or trends or popularity or quantity in terms of number or money or followers, whatever kind of power comes from that, the life of God is not seen in those things. It is only seen in the laying down of those things or it's seen by, in those who've never had them to begin with. In this space of not being able to gather together, God has created a space to gather you together within yourself. Something I'm I'm consistently pushing against is this sort of Christian, I think slightly off-kilter reality that we're in this pandemic and we're trying to push through until we can get out of it. And so we only see the work of God as being evident in that he gets us out of the pandemic. And I want to say that might be what he has in store at some point. But what God wants us to know now, in the moment, before he releases us from this, is that so many of us have made this joke. Before 2020, we made jokes like, oh, I'm so scatterbrained today. Oh, I'm so disjointed. Oh, you know what? I was nine different selves today. We may or may not joke with my mom, which ginger are we talking to today? We may or may not make that joke. I love you, mom, and all the other moms that come with you. (laughs) We make these jokes all the time. And so what is God saying right now? God is saying that in this time where you can't gather together with people, he wants to gather you together with all of yourselves and unite you to be one singular whole self. He wants to gather me and all of the me's that are fractured and disjointed within me. He wants to gather all of it together. So this time of not being able to gather is a time of special revelation where God wants to show you where you've been spilled all over the place, and he wants to gather all of that back up again and unite it into one singular and whole self because when we can regather... The people that we need to be in the regathering is only going to be made manifest if we let God gather us within ourselves now. We are not going to be regathered to be the same congregation we were. We're not going to be regathered to be the same country we were. We're not going to be regathered to be the same universal church that we were. Whatever the new thing that we're going to be is, it involves needing to be regathered within our individual selves now because we're going to be an altogether different kind of community. And so all the times you've said, I wish I just had some time to just pull myself together, God is giving you that time. This is that time. It's not business as usual. 
It's a different time. It's a glimpse. It's a window of time that we may never have again. And somebody might say, well, I hope we never have this again. I hope we don't have this again too. But while we do, this is what God is saying. You're spilled. You're disjointed. You is all over the place. I want to pull you together. We talk about, we talk, and we usually mean it in terms of fashion, but we talk about somebody that's a well put together person. And we talk about it with clothing, and we talk about it in relationships, and we talk about it, in, you know, when, 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 our, when our watch matches our car and things like that. Great. But what we really want is we want to be a well put together person in our soul. Because otherwise, we'll have to have a car that matches our watch to compensate for the fact that our soul doesn't match anything in the kingdom. I could put the microphone down and just walk away now, and everybody will be good. But I'm not going to, because I have more time to talk, and I will take it. The virtue that God is working on in all of us right now, the way that you're going to have the space to be put together as a person is through this one virtue, patience. And I want to talk about patience entirely different than we've ever talked about it before. We we've often talk about patience as a way of being patient until we're allowed to be impatient again later. Like, take food. We usually talk about fasting as a way to not eat until we can overeat after the fast is over. Fair? We usually talk about patience like, I'm not going to yell at Sophia now. I'm going to wait because I'm patient, and then I'm going to yell at Sophia. It's like we, we wait to be impatient, and then when we wait long enough to be impatient, then all of a sudden we excuse being impatient because we waited patiently to be impatient, and it turns into craziness. I just saw John punch Stephanie's leg, and I'm assuming something's happening. God, heal this. Whatever this is that's happening there. It's, it's, it's not good for anybody in the room when there's only like eight people in the room. I can see everything that's happening. Rob, get off your phone. I can see everything that's going on. I'm just playing. I love you, but I saw you, I saw you just slide it over. You're good. The whole worship team's going to get up here mad for the final song, like not even into it. You saw the best they had today. Everyone's going to be mad at me after this. Patience is fruitful when we wait long enough for God to show us something in the situation that has always been there that we're not seeing. That's what patience is. I'm going to say it again. Patience is when we wait long enough for God to show us something in the situation that has always been there that we're not seeing. There are certain things that God has given us the grace to see right away. There are other things that God wants us to see, but he only wants us to see them through him revealing it. This is how God works. He's given me grace to see some things, but then there's other things that I can't see that he doesn't want me to see unless he specifically shows them. Why? Because certain things that are visible, God shields me from because my character or my moment or my temperament isn't right to see them. And the act of God showing me something actually changes my temperament to be able to see it. Whew. 
the act of revelation isn't just about God showing you something. It's about God changing you so that you could see the thing that he's about to show you with care and gentleness. With care and gentleness. A member of our church, Dan Cahill, texted me this morning, and he, he texted me a very long sort of prophetic word, and right in the middle of it, he said, he used this phrase, the long, gentle love of Salem. The long, gentle love of Salem. And then later on, he reframed it and said, the slow, gentle love of Salem. And that phrase, the long or the slow, gentle love of Salem. Love is something that takes time. For love to really be love, it has to go through seasons. It has to go through situations. It has to go through years. Oftentimes, people, relationships fall apart because the person only loved seasonally, which means they were infatuated. They weren't in love. For love to truly be seen as love, it has to be slow, it has to be long, it has to go through seasons. When you know that somebody's been with you in your summer season, that's great. When they've been with you in your fall season, a little better. When they've been with you in your winter season to help you get to your spring season, then you know somebody loves you. When you can love me when the sun goes down by 4.30 and it's pitch black at 6 a.m., when you can love me there, when everything in my life is frozen, when nothing is growing, when there's no beauty, everything is just shattered, bare, naked, and broken, when you can love me there, I'll, I'll accept your love in the summertime. The slow, gentle love of Salem. So how, what kind of revelation do we see in this text? Jesus calling two of his disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. The first thing I want to say is it says Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. If Jesus decided to go to Nazareth, if Jesus decided to go to Samaria, if Jesus decided to go to Egypt, if Jesus decided to go to Capernaum, he would have found somebody else. Philip only is found because Jesus decided to go there. Nobody that is walking with the Lord found God. It's a phrase that we need to stop saying because it literally represents a heretical theology. No one found God. God decided to go to your life. God found you and God said, follow me in a way that changed you in the moment so that you followed him. Nope, it was my decision. I'm going to do this. It'll be fun. Pastor, it was my decision to accept Christ. What made you decide and made somebody else not decide? I was more open than they were. What made you more open than they were? I was ready. What made you more ready than them? Are you better than them? Do you have some innate value in you that they didn't have? What made you more open? What made you more ready? What made you more close? What made you more attentive? It's a mystery. Yes, it's Jesus deciding. You see, Jesus chooses Philip, but then Jesus doesn't choose Nathaniel. Philip goes and chooses Nathaniel. 
So some of us came to the Lord because the Lord just pulled the veil off of our eyes. And we didn't have this lead up. We didn't get to the bottom of the barrel and drugs. And then all of a sudden we found him. That's some people's story. But for some of us, God just took the veil off so that we could look at somebody else and say, whoa, 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 you're going the wrong way. If you just believed, if you just realized, if you just had an epiphany, it's the grace of God telling you, now you need to go and find. We're going to talk about this. So what does Philip do? It says that Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip went and found Nathanael. Philip decided to go to Nathanael and found him. So far, so good. But then Philip says, my eyes have been opened. I can see this guy, this son of Joseph is really the son of God. He's the one all of our prophets have ever talked about. I'm a different person. You can't tell me that I'm not. I see the sun differently, the sky differently, the stars differently. I see my family differently. I see you differently, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's response was, take me to this wonderful person. I agree with you and I trust you. No. Nathaniel's response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? I'd be like, can anything good come from your face? That would have been my immediate response. Have you ever met somebody who when you pour your love out for them, they're immediately cynical about a detail that really doesn't matter anyway? I don't want to live in a country, Jeff, where people are judged by where they're from. Wait a minute. I might live in a country that does that. Oh, boy. Maybe the story has some relevance to it, maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll put that on the shelf for a second. Have we met somebody like this who misses beauty because of skin tone? Who misses beauty because of job occupation? Who misses beauty because somebody's house isn't as well kept as theirs? Yeah. What does Philip say? Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I'd be like, listen, you racist bigot. Can anything good come from your mouth? Probably not. He says, come, come and, and see. And when, like me, knowing me and how confrontational I am, I'm like, that may be the biggest, most elaborate miracle in the entire Bible is Philip saying to Nathaniel, we found the son of God. We found God. And Nathaniel's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip just says, come and see, and doesn't confront him, doesn't yell at him, doesn't debate with him, doesn't repost him, doesn't reply to him, doesn't subtweet him. Just says, come and see. How do you do that? How is he so... How do you, I don't want to do... I don't even... Here's how sinful I am. I don't want to be saved enough to where that's what I would want to do. I want to argue with you. I want to contend. I want to debate. What, what is this thing in Philip? What did he meet in Jesus that gathered him so that he was one unified whole? That he was a gathered, well-put-together person in his soul to hear... To, to offer somebody the most beautiful thing in the world only to hear cynicism back and joyfully say, just take your time, but just come. Let me show you. He doesn't say, follow me. He doesn't say, believe me. He doesn't say, trust me. He just says, you, you stay who you are. Just come see for yourself. 
What did Philip meet in Jesus that melted him and rearranged him and deconstructed and reconstructed him to make him the kind of person? What was the revelation deposited in Philip that made his hands so nail-scarred that he bypassed insults and racism and just said, come on, how do he do that? I don't, I didn't write the answer. Does anybody in the room know how he did that? I'm actually asking Frank, John, anyone, Doreen. I'm just kidding. I'll tell you how he did it. What was deposited in Philip is seen in Jesus' interaction with Nathaniel. What we're going to see, when Jesus interacts with Philip, you just see a closed system. You don't know what's going on. He says, follow me, and Philip says, yes, and Philip immediately goes, but with Jesus and Nathaniel, you see, you see the closed system is open for us. All the ingredients are put on the table. You start to see now who Jesus is and what his revelation is that turns a cynic into a servant. What is it about Jesus that can turn a cynic into a servant? It's, very, it's, it's written in few words Let's just look at it very carefully. So now Nathaniel, who, by the way, and this is annoying, his name means gift from God. Why is that annoying, Pastor? Think of everybody in your life that is cynical and is always complaining and is always negative towards you and is always second-guessing you and is always putting your opinion as maybe this is the one, but are there any others in the room that we could pay attention to? That kind of person, their name means gift from God. How annoying is that? How annoying is that? The person that we're disgusted with the most because of their cynicism and argumentativeness and negativity, God is saying, just so you know, their name to me is gift. So treat them that way. And I'm like, how? How? I'm fine, fine. I'm crying, uncle. You got me. But how? How? Look at how Jesus does it. Nathaniel stands up, shuts off his phone. Fine, I'll go. Let's go see him. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you, and I'll show you that nothing good can come from Nazareth. So Nathaniel starts marching towards Jesus. Jesus sees him and says, An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's response is, how did you know me? It's arrogant. Jesus says, here comes one of the only Israelites in whom is no guile, no shame, no guilt, no deceit. And Nathaniel says, ah, you know what? Maybe this guy is somebody good. He sounds like he has good taste. He sounds like he can recognize goodness from a distance. He sounds like the kind of person I want to hang around. Do you see this? Jesus immediately says, now this is interesting what Jesus says. Jesus says, an Israelite, which is to say a Jacob in whom there is no deception. Well, what do we know about Jacob from Genesis? He deceived his brother Esau. He deceived his father. He deceived his father-in-law a whole bunch of times. He deceived his children. He deceived his wife. I mean, you go through the story. He, this man is deceiving everybody. And Jesus strategically sees Nathaniel coming and says, here comes a Jacob 
who isn't deceptive. These words, as Americans, we don't understand how profoundly disruptive they were when Jesus said them. So now everybody stops. Now everybody stops and is looking at Nathaniel. Of course, Nathaniel's like, how does he know me? And then Jesus says, when you were sitting under the fig tree today, I saw you. This is what I love about Jesus. When he affirms, he makes it clear. When he points out your stuff, he makes it cryptic. Everybody in the world, please write that down. When Jesus compliments, he makes it public. When Jesus critiques, he makes it cryptic. I'm pretty sure we do the opposite. I really, really love that person. They're wonderful, but... And now, I guess because of a few compliments, you gave yourself license to just destroy their humanity because you said, I really love them first. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus compliments him in a way that is unfathomable. He says, here's the Jacob. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here is Jacob, and this is a Jacob that's better than the Jacob from the Bible. And then he throws this little dart at him. When I saw you sitting under the fig tree, when you were sitting under the fig tree today, I saw you. Now, all of a sudden, Nathaniel's like, like first Jesus complimented him, and he got real egotistical. How does he know me? And then Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree today. And he's like, ah, yeah, no, he does. He knows everything. He knows all things. Lord, you know all things. And he finally, like, submits, and he says, my Lord and my God. What does that mean? I want you to see this order because what I'm about to say is so simple and so easy to say, but this is the revelation of God's love. What does it mean I saw you sitting under the fig tree? You could go through a hundred commentaries and see 200 different possibilities of what this means. Here's what I'm going with. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they realized was that they were naked. And when they realized they were naked, the Bible says in Genesis 3 that they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves behind fig leaves. So fig leaves in Jewish folklore have become synonymous with a false covering. Covering yourself and not going to God. Covering yourself and not sacrificing the animal. Covering yourself and not going to the temple and asking for forgiveness. So fig leaves and fig trees in Jewish history have become this sign, this sense of false covering. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, brother, I saw you sitting under that fig tree today. And he's saying more than just, I saw what you were doing under the fig tree. He said, I saw you thousands of years ago when you were hiding in the Garden of Eden. I saw you. I saw you, Nathaniel, when you were covering yourself with this arrogance, with this cynicism. I see you right now as you're covering yourself in this false arrogance of, oh, he must just know me. I see through it all. I see you covering yourself with the fig leaves. And Nathaniel knows the rest of the story. God takes the fig leaves off of Adam and Eve, and he covers them with animal skins. Well, why is that important? Because for God to cover Adam and Eve with animal skins, he must have had to sacrifice an animal. And so without the Bible actually saying it, in Genesis chapter 3, there is a sacrifice and blood is spilled because God covers Adam and Eve with animal skins. And so Jesus is looking at Nathaniel saying, you need a lamb to take those fig leaves off and bleed to cover you, and you're looking at him. 
My flesh is going to cover your flesh. My skin is going to cover your skin. My blood is going to cover what you're doing. But why? That's all well and good. But why did that unravel Nathaniel? Here's why. Because when Jesus first complimented Nathaniel, Nathaniel thought to himself, he must not know my worst. But then when Jesus said, after he complimented Nathaniel, after I saw you sitting under the fig tree, now Nathaniel rewinds and says, when he complimented me, he knew my sin. He knew my worst when he complimented me and said there's no deceit or guile in me. So now the compliment is no longer vain flattery. Now the compliment is restorative. Because now I know, I, when he first complimented me, I didn't know he knew my junk. But now that he pointed out that he knows all my stuff, now when I go back to the moment when he complimented me, he told me there was no deceit in me, even though he knew there was nothing but deceit in me. He told me there was no deceit in me even when he knew I was hiding everything from him. What kind of love can look at all of my sin and see right through it to the heart of who I am? This kind of love unravels a person. What does Jesus say next? Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Watch what Jesus says. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these. Listen carefully to these words, Salem. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, this is easy to figure out what Jesus is saying because in Genesis, Jacob runs from home after he deceives his father. He dresses up like Esau. He steals a blessing from his father. After stealing Esau's birthright, he then leaves because Esau's going to murder him. He's terrified. He's sinful. He's ashamed. He doesn't know, did my mom deceive me? Did I deceive me? Did I deceive? Did they deceive? He's confused. He's alienated. He's broken. He's running. He has no home. And he falls asleep. And he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees a ladder. And it says on the ladder, he saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And God said to him, this place where you see this ladder is going to be the place where you will come back and I will make a home for you. So now look at what Jesus did. He sees Nathanael coming and he says, an Israelite, or he says, Jacob, in whom there is no deceit. And then he says, to Nathaniel, I am the ladder that your ancestor Jacob saw. I am the place that if you're running, you can come find me. If you've deceived somebody, you can come rest here. If you've been deceived, you can come rest here. I am the place where your sin that you've committed and the sin that's been committed on you can find their full and whole resolve here. I am Jacob's ladder. I am Bethel. I am the house of God and nobody knew it. I am the temple. I am Jerusalem. I'm all of those places. And Nathaniel is just unraveled. His cynicism evaporated. Why? Because of these four things. This is what Jesus is doing for you. Before you can do this for somebody else, this is what Jesus is doing for you. These four things. First, 
He's offering invitation and not investigation. He's offering invitation and not investigation. Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found the one. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And what does Philip offer him? He doesn't investigate him and say, listen, where are you from? Because obviously nothing good came from wherever that is. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, let's look through your life and let's look and see what your doctrines are. Maybe that's why you don't love Jesus. Let's look and see what your doctrines are. Let's look and see what you believe about social justice. Let's look and see what you believe about sexuality. Let's look and see what you believe about the Catholics. Let's look and see what you believe about the Muslims. Ah, you don't have good views on those things. That's why you can't see him. That is not what he says. He just says, come and see. Invitation, not investigation. What does Nathaniel do? He comes and sees. And everything that could have been investigated is just covered by the love of Jesus. That's what he's doing for you, whoever this is meaningful for. He's inviting you. He's not investigating you. Because Jesus doesn't need to investigate anybody because he already knows. (laughs) Like, Sherlock Holmes isn't impressive to Jesus. I already knew that. This CSI Miami episode could have been one second. I already knew. Unlike my wife, who when we watch The Blacklist, says 87 times who the killer is, eventually if you say everybody, you're going to be right. And then it's like she's walking in victory. Like, I told you, you said everybody. Invitation. Not investigation. Watch what happens next. Jesus offers affirmation, not accusation. Before Jesus brings up the sin, he says, I see you, and I know you, and there's no deceit in you. Was there deceit in him? Yes. Did Jesus say there wasn't? Yes. Well, which one is right? The minute the word says something to you, that thing becomes true by virtue of the word saying it to you. So the minute Jesus said, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, then whatever deceit was in him was turned into truth like this. Oh, so he didn't have sin anymore? No. He did. But Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's not the founder of our faith and then says, now make sure it's only ever perfect. He's the founder. You wouldn't have faith if Jesus didn't give it to you. He's the founder of your faith. He found faith and gave it to you. The only reason you have faith to believe is because Jesus gave it to you. It's a gift. You didn't earn it because you didn't have faith to even know what it was. And he's the perfecter of it, which means when he gives us faith, it's not perfect. And we walk around feeling horrible and judging the daylights out of other people. And I had so many other words just now than daylights, but daylights are safe. We judge the daylights out of all these other people, and they don't even have faith. 
Look at what he's saying. I am the founder and perfecter of your faith, which means that once you have faith, that faith isn't even perfect yet. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the founder and protector. He'd be the founder and the controller of your faith. Or he'd be the founder and gatekeeper of your faith. But he's the perfecter of our faith, because even when we have faith, the faith isn't perfect. We shouldn't even be judging ourselves that much. And then we judge people and their lives and their lifestyles who don't even have faith backwards. He affirms and he never accuses. You're saying he doesn't talk to us about our sin? He does. After acceptance. The woman caught in the act of adultery. He says, where are your accusers? They're not here. Neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go and sin no more. Then he talks about sin. First, he says to Nathaniel, you're healed. Then he talks to him about his sin. It's always affirmation first, never accusation. It could be revelation of sin, which is Jesus saying, let's talk about this. Accusation means you stay over there until you get rid of it. Relationship says, bring your sin to me. Let's sit around it. Let's put some time on it. Let's talk about it. Oh, you can't do that right now? It's too sensitive? It's too raw right now? Okay. Well, we're good. When it's time, we'll, we'll, we'll try this conversation again. That's what the affirming spirit of Christ does. Look at this. Jesus offered compassion not coercion. Compassion. Empathy. Not coercion. Compassion, not coercion. Empathy, not extortion. He is passionate about Nathaniel's life. He doesn't coerce it because he loves it. He's passionate about it. When you try to control things, it's because you're more passionate about yourself than the thing you're trying to control. If you truly are passionate about something other than you, you won't control it. You will just show it passion. But you won't control it. Because controlling it means you're more concerned about yourself than you are about it, and it helps you feel better, so you're controlling it. And finally, and this is the last one, and I close with this, and this for me is the most important of all of them. This defines the way I view being a pastor, which is to say, because my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, this is how I view being a pastor, which is to say this is how I want you all to view being priests in the kingdom of God. Situation, not suffocation. Situation. I could do a seminar on this. I could do a whole weekend on this. But to keep it simple, whenever you step in front of another person's life, you just stepped into who they are, 
but you also just stepped into who they are at that moment today. So when you go to confront somebody, to invite somebody, even to tell somebody you love them or to show kindness to somebody, whenever you go into somebody else's life, you have just entered their life, which means you've entered their momentary situation. They're not a person divorced from anything that's happening that day, that week, that month, that year, that life. So if somebody just failed to make a sale and they knew that they're on the chopping block at this job and no one said it to them, but they know if I keep not making sales, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get axed from the job. That's it. It's over. And so they're walking around. And so they just had a sale that they thought they were going to make. And you're meeting them for lunch. And they just didn't make that sale. And they don't feel like telling you the whole backstory because it's not official that they're going to lose their job. But they pretty much know it's, it's coming. It's inevitable. And they thought they were going to make this sale. And they didn't make this sale. And you meet with them over lunch. And you try to talk to them about something going on in your life. And they're just not feeling you in the moment. So maybe they're not really compassionate or whatever. And now you get mad because you know your situation so well and know nothing about theirs. And now are judging them off of how they acted towards you and you don't know anything about their situation. And so what do we do? We suffocate them with arguments and I can't believe you did this to me and we're blowing up their phone and we're blowing up their accounts and we're, not, and we're asking other of their friends, are they okay? Is she okay? Is she okay? And then also now, now everyone in the world is on group chats because something might not be right with someone because we're not situational. When you enter somebody's life, you enter their situation. And here's the reality. I, saw, I, wish, I, I wish I told Ian about it. I just thought of it now because I probably have ADD or something. But I saw this great graph, and it was a, it was a huge gray line. And it said, uh, and the gray line was labeled somebody's life. And then underneath the gray line was a tiny little blue line that said what you know about it. And then the whole thing had a circle, circle around it, and it said this is why we should be gentle. Because their life is from here to here. And I only know this part of it. I don't know that part of it. And so when I enter it, be gentle. Because I don't know what all of this is. I don't know what's there. So situation, as opposed to suffocation. Saints, we have tried to invite people to church with obsessiveness, and not just obsessiveness over them. We've suffocated ourselves thinking there's something wrong with us because they're not coming. And then we have to try to measure it. So we think about what could be wrong in their life that is making them not come. You just don't know their situation. When one sheep goes astray... Does Jesus go after it, Franco? He does. He says it, right? John Fair, when one sheep goes astray, Jesus says, I'll go find the one, bring it back. Fair? I mean, good? 
So when the rich young ruler went away from Jesus, did Jesus go after him? No. He stood there and the Bible says he was sad. When the younger brother went away in the prodigal son story, did the father go after him? No. He stayed home. But did Jesus say that when one sheep goes astray, I'll go after him? Yes. High voice time. Yes. But then when somebody goes astray, does Jesus go after them? No. It, why? Because Jesus includes situation, not just suffocation. He knows the situation. If this one baby sheep goes away, because it's a baby sheep, it doesn't know anybody. I'm going to go get it. But when this sheep goes astray, I know that this sheep needs to learn a few things. See a few falsities. See their ideals kind of not work out. And then it'll either come back or I'll go after it later. Situation. Not just suffocation. Patience. The revelation of God in our life that he's patient with us should make us the kinds of people who invite instead of investigate, who affirm instead of accuse, who have compassion instead of coercion, and who value situation over suffocating somebody. And I can hear in my heart the people right now saying, oh, so we never talk about sin? For starters, why the hell do you need to always talk about somebody else's sin? Why is that such an obsession? And I trust me, I'm confronted with this probably every other week. Somebody says, we need to really talk more about sin. Why? Paul talks about it in lists, just quick lists. But then he spends books and chapters talking about the love of God. Want me to list some sins so you know what they are? I all know you know what they are because you do 95% of them. I don't think you need lists. I think they needed lists back then because this whole Christian thing was new. I don't think we need the lists anymore. I think we desperately need to know what God's love looks like in everyday life and action. That's what I think we need to know. And if it angers you that I don't talk more about what other people are doing wrong, please Call the church office so we can sit down and help unravel whatever is tightly wound in you that needs to be unraveled. Yes, we should talk about sin, but infinitely more than that. We need to talk about the love of God. And here's the funny thing. When Jesus talked about sin, he did it cryptically. Remember I said that? So here's what I just said to everybody judging me. We should invite, not investigate. We should affirm, not accuse. You all heard me say it. I was talking about your sin. Because I am saying that some of you are investigators, which is a sin. Some of you are accusers, which is literally what the devil does. Some of you use coercion, which is what people in powerful positions use money for. And people use suffocation on many, many different levels. 
I talked about all those things. I'm just not going to make sin front and center. I'm going to make the love of God front and center and let him cryptically talk to you in between the lines. That's what I'm going to do, and that's what we should be doing. Why? Because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Sin is always going to be a part of our life, slowly less, but always a part of our life. He's not the founder and holder of our faith. He's the founder and, per- and perfecter of it because even when we have it, it's not perfect especially those who don't even have it. If we have faith and it's not perfect, how much less perfect would people be who don't have it? And why do we hold them to the standards of having to get every list in Paul's lists right when they don't even have the faith? Can we just have Eucharist now? I like got into an argument with you and I don't even think we were fighting. I think we're good. It's not you, it's me, Salem. I love you. I think we all get what we're saying. So let's stand to our feet this morning. How does Jesus affirm us as a, as a Christian community and also subtly talk to us about our sin? He does it every time we come to the table. So get your bread and your juice ready. He's going to talk to you about your sin right now. It's called the words of institution. And whenever you begin the Eucharist liturgy... It begins with, on the night when he was loved and cared for by his disciples, right? No. It's on the night when he was betrayed. So is he talking about our sin? Yes. The whole Eucharist liturgy is about our sin. On the night when he was betrayed, what did he do? Our Lord took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. As often as you eat this meal, eat this meal in remembrance or being put back together, remembered, gathered. Eat this in being regathered to me. And then he takes the cup of wine and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Did Jesus sit there at that point and unravel for all 12 disciples what those sins were? No. One person in particular was about to commit a crazy one. And before he did, Jesus says, Judas, before you go and commit what many will think is an unforgivable sin, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of even what you're about to do tonight. Does he talk about sin? Yeah. He talks about it by forgiving it. And there's something about that forgiveness that changes us because Judas ends up throwing that money back. And he says, I've betrayed innocent blood. What drove him? With the devil in him, what drove him to throw that money back? The forgiveness of sins. It crushes you. You want to crush the worst person in your life? You want to crush the person who's just the most nasty to you all the time? Love them and forgive them. It'll wreck them into being a better person. Love is the only kind of wreck that makes the car better after the accident. It wrecks you into being a better person. Jesus, Salem, wants to love you so much, he wants to wreck you into being a better person. 
And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people the body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Remind us that you descend on things like bread and juice and make them miracles. And if you do that for something like bread and juice, you're the one who said, how much more value are you than even the lilies of the field and the sparrows that fly? If you're willing to come into bread and juice and make it divine, how much more would you descend on us right now and make us for the world the taste of Christ? May everyone from Salem who partakes in this meal and everyone is invited, may everyone who partakes in this meal be a taste of the kingdom of God this week, a love that wrecks people into being better, a love that can proclaim there's no deceit, even when there is, because one day there won't be. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, and this is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Would you partake with me this morning? Salem Tabernacle, thank you so much for being here. Tomorrow is the day that we celebrate uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. Uh, we will not be having morning prayer tomorrow. Uh, we will be picking that back up again next Monday. But I just wanted to encourage everybody, if you're looking for something to read tomorrow, I just finished this book called Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. It's widely considered the final writing of Dr. King. It spoke to me in ways uh, that you know I could just talk about and talk about, really open my eyes to things. Wonderful way to celebrate a, a prophet of prophets who spoke authoritatively uh, to the evils of systematic racism. A wonderful book. So if you're looking for something to read tomorrow, where do we go from here? Chaos or Community by Dr. King. Salem, we love you so much. Grace and peace. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.